The Take On Duchenne podcast is dedicated to educating and raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, a rare and progressive genetic disease affecting muscle function. We bring scientific leaders in the field of DMD together to discuss and share knowledge, insights, and perspectives to support the continuous education and awareness of this disease. The series is brought to you by PTC Therapeutics, a global biopharmaceutical company focused on improving patients' lives who are affected by rare diseases like DMD through innovative therapies, earlier diagnosis, and improved standard of care. The information presented in this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not medical advice. This should not replace or substitute speaking with a healthcare professional. If you are a patient or a caregiver, consult your care team with any questions or concerns regarding medical conditions. Hello, my name is Dr. Audrey Powell. I am a senior medical science liaison at PTC Therapeutics and the host for this podcast episode and educational series. We are dedicating this episode number four to discuss the continuum of disease and importance of continuation of care. We are joined today by Dr. Meyer from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who has extensive clinical experience managing boys and young men with DMD for this discussion. Welcome, Dr. Meyer. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. Powell. It's a pleasure to be able to participate. Excellent. Dr. Meyer, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your clinical experience in the area of DMD. Sure. So I'm trained as a pediatric pulmonologist. Um, and during that time, I developed an interest in managing patients with chronic respiratory failure from a variety of different reasons, both from being born prematurely, but also developed a passion in pa managing patients with chronic respiratory problems related to progressive neuromuscular disease. Um, when I finished my fellowship, which was a little over 22 years ago, I uh, started to build a practice within my institution um, that was very much directed towards managing patients with chronic respiratory failure. And I've, in doing so, developed wonderful personal uh, relationships, personal and professional relationships, and following patients through very challenging times. And I've found that to be one of the most rewarding things I've had the privilege of accomplishing uh, in my career. Thank you. Can you give us a little bit of context on DMD disease progression and the different stages of the disease? Sure. So patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy um, start out looking and behaving and breathing completely normally. And that usually lasts through the first um, five years or so. And that's usually when a um, patient is identified and it's typically related to uh, having difficulty walking up steps or running or with coordination. Um, and in an ideal world, that journey will be quite short and an astute clinician or therapist will recognize what's going on and refer to a neuromuscular specialist who will then be able to do testing to identify uh, the presence of muscle breakdown and a particular protein uh, and the blood called creatine phosphokinase, which is a byproduct of muscle, um, muscle damage. From that 
point, uh, the patient will be then tested for uh, the uh, absence of the gene uh, related to Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, and then the diagnosis would be made. With, with that, the um, hope is that the patient would then have access to a variety of different clinicians as part of a multidisciplinary neuromuscular management program. So once a diagnosis is made, uh, the patient's followed by a number of clinicians, including, of course, the neuromuscular specialist who um, coordinates pharmacotherapies for the patient, um, and then cardiologists who are very much involved in following the cardiomyopathy of a heart muscle disease that's present in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, and then I, as a pulmonologist, will survey the impact on the respiratory muscles and follow two main things. The first is the ability or inability to take a deep breath and forcefully exhale or cough, which comes into play quite prominently when a patient gets sick. And so we need to be very aware of that and help support the patient when the breathing muscles prevent them from being able to cough effectively. The other part uh, is uh, the ability or inability to breathe effectively, to bring in the oxygen the body needs and then to remove the carbon dioxide the body produces. That begins at night and uh, often is heralded by poor sleep at night, headaches in the morning, challenges uh, staying awake, um, and uh, you know, being energetic during the day. Uh, we have plenty of ways of supporting uh, breathing difficulty uh, related to ventilation using ventilators through uh, a nasal interface and when needed during the day through an oral interface. Once a patient's respiratory needs are identified, which is typically in the uh, uh, second decade of life, often after a patient has uh, become wheelchair bound and has lost the ability to independently ambulate, then the next thing that we do is make sure that the patient and their caregivers have a very formal and clear plan for managing them during an acute illness. Um, and we spend a lot of time supporting them both in person during a clinical visit um, but also remotely by phone during the uh, onset of an acute illness. And then finally, due to some of the successes both in clinical management and pharmacotherapies, many patients with Duchenne survive into adulthood. And many centers now are designing transition programs to transfer care from pediatric-trained specialists to adult-trained specialists. And that's something that is uh, rapidly developing um, in, in, in clinical medicine for caring for patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Thank you for that overview of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. What is the current understanding and evidence that supports early diagnosis and continued treatment in DMD? That's a very excellent question. And the simple answer is that once you lose muscle capacity in Duchenne muscular dystrophy with the treatments that we have available, the um, loss is not regained. And so it's absolutely critical to alter the trajectory or the loss of function as early in the course of disease as possible. And that is often uh, as soon as the diagnosis is made. There are 
anti-inflammatory pharmacotherapies that are often introduced right at the beginning of, of the clinical progression. And that's been shown to delay onset of many uh, clinically significant um, time points, such as loss of ambulation and onset of ventilation by as many as two to three years. In addition, there are more novel pharmacotherapies that can help preserve function. Um, and so the earlier those are introduced, the better the overall outcome will be. Um, the hope, of course, is that the next phase of pharmacotherapy development will be to help with muscle regeneration, which would allow one to regain function. But until that point occurs, it's absolutely critical to initiate uh, both clinical and pharmacotherapy as early in the course of disease as possible. Can you explain what the standard of care in DMD recommends with regards to ongoing management and treatment? The standard of care is to have a patient with Duchenne muscular dystrophy managed in a multidisciplinary center where there's, in addition to the neurologist, the neuromuscular specialist who's coordinating the overall uh, functional assessment and pharmacotherapy, that there also are um, other specialists such as cardiologists to manage the cardiomyopathy, the heart muscle disease, both in pharmacotherapy, but also surveying it using some modern, uh, modern approaches, including both uh, echocardiograms and then cardiac MRI testing. In addition, having a a well-developed relationship with a pulmonologist and his or her support team is important, both for day-to-day -day management and uh, overcoming symptoms, um, but also uh, dealing with acute management of a respiratory illness. Thank you, Dr. Meyer. Where a pulmonary care in DMD is concerned, how does ambulation status correlate with functional decline? What effect does standard treatment have on pulmonary function? Excellent question. Um, in general, all muscles deteriorate at some rate, often in parallel. And so um, the respiratory muscles are skeletal muscles, just like the muscles of the legs and the arms. And so we see all muscles losing capacity at about the same time. The question is, when do you get to a threshold where once you're beyond it, there's a significant loss of function. Uh, as an example, we can follow how hard it is for a patient to walk a certain distance. Um, we have what we call the six-minute walk test to see how much a patient can walk within six minutes, and that's a standard um, outcome measure. In addition, we have pulmonary function measures to measure how deeply a patient can breathe, and then how much air they can expel. And that amount of air uh, that they can breathe out is directly related to their respiratory muscle function. And then, of course, our cardiology colleagues can do functional assessments of the heart muscle. And all of those uh, progress together. In terms of a direct relationship between loss of ambulation and respiratory function, it's generally accepted that there once you um, are in a sitting position continuously, it's harder to take a deep breath and then forcefully exhale. And so the typical expectation is that you lose some lung capacity just from having to be in a sitting position continuously and not 
moving from sitting to standing back to sitting and standing um, as is normal in unaffected people. So given you mentioned um, going from sitting to standing and not having that variation, what about the effects of scoliosis on pulmonary function? Certainly scoliosis in and of itself can limit the ability to breathe in deeply because the spine curves and that can compress or shorten the uh, area for the lungs to expand, making it very hard, if not impossible, to breathe in deeply and then breathe out a normal amount of air. Thankfully, with uh, steroid therapy, the severity of scoliosis is typically not as bad as it used to be in patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But certainly, in the cases where it is present, it's absolutely critical to address it aggressively and then manage it to try and minimize the impact on overall respiratory function. Thank you. You also mentioned the deterioration of muscles that includes cardiovascular muscles as well. The cardiovascular system is also affected throughout the disease continuum. Could you please discuss the importance of ongoing management of cardiovascular health in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy? Yes. One of the things that has happened over the last five years or so is that the precision in identifying early changes, specifically fibrosis, which occurs when you have loss of muscle, um, that fibrosis can be identified much earlier, even before there's a functional loss in um, the heart muscle function, um, uh, using cardiac MRI, um, which allows a very precise assessment of the um, integrity of the heart muscle. And what we can do with that is actually literally see into the heart muscle and can often identify early fibrotic changes, uh, which can then prompt a cardiologist to start supportive uh, therapies to help the heart muscle function at a higher level. That was not done before, and we typically relied on an echocardiogram, which just measures how strongly and efficiently the heart can contract and pump blood through the body. So we've discussed quite a bit concerning pulmonary care. Would you mind explaining to us the factors that go into play when you're deciding upon ventilatory support for a patient? Yes. Um, it's, a, I think, arguably one of the most important questions in managing patients with uh, muscular dystrophy. What will happen is that when the respiratory muscles become weak enough to not allow the patient to be able to bring in the oxygen they need and remove the carbon dioxide the body produces, carbon dioxide will build up in the lungs, which eventually will lead to an inability to bring in a normal amount of oxygen. The typical time that occurs is during sleep. And the most focused time of sleep where that happens early on is in deep rapid eye movement or REM sleep, the stage of sleep when we dream. Now, thankfully, the body is set up in a way so that if the oxygen or carbon dioxide level is low, in particular during sleep, the body has sensors to recognize that, and then the patient will respond by breathing more deeply, either awakening or arousing from deep sleep, and then their oxygen and carbon dioxide levels will normalize, and then they'll go back to sleep. And for somebody with 
the beginning of respiratory failure, what will happen is that that cycle of high carbon dioxide and low oxygen will occur multiple times at night, and that will prevent them from getting good sleep. And so what often will happen is that a patient will wake up and they won't feel like they've gotten a good night of sleep. That often can then lead to difficulty with school performance, difficulty focusing during the day, often because of high carbon dioxide can lead to headaches in the morning. So headaches in the morning after awakening, certainly if it's happening routinely, is a very classic sign of respiratory insufficiency or respiratory failure. Now, there's only so much that clinical assessment can do. The gold standard test to determine if somebody is having respiratory failure at night is a full polysomnogram or sleep study with a carbon dioxide assessment. Has to have a carbon dioxide assessment through the entire night. What that will do is that will allow us to see how the carbon dioxide level fluctuates at night. And if it rises to a critically high threshold, that would indicate that the patient is underventilating, which we call hypoventilation, and has respiratory failure. Now, one of the important things is that the study needs to be evaluated, recognizing that this is a patient with neuromuscular disease. Most of the sleep studies that are done in pediatrics are performed to evaluate for obstructive sleep apnea in patients that have upper airway obstruction, perhaps from large tonsils. That's not typically a situation that we worry about in muscular dystrophy. And so if you happen to get a sleep study report that says, well, your son has obstructive sleep apnea, that would to me be a concern that the child may actually not have obstructive sleep apnea, but may have trouble breathing related to respiratory muscle weakness or respiratory failure. Once it's identified that a patient has respiratory failure, then starting on non-invasive nasal ventilation or bilevel positive airway pressure is necessary. There are a number of different strategies for doing that. And the most critical is to find an interface, a nasal interface that your son or a, a patient is comfortable with. And that's critical because that's how the air gets into you. You know, it gets into um, the person using the ventilator. There are many, many, many different types and designs of nasal interfaces, and a good sleep center or a good pulmonary division uh, will have many options that they can uh, show before actually starting on ventilation. The process for starting on ventilation can either be in the office to initiate uh, the pressure support or more commonly done in a lab, a sleep lab, or sometimes in the hospital. But in one way or another, um, there needs to be an organized uh, multi-prong approach to both identify a suitable interface and then a protocol for introducing the ventilation in a way to make sure that the carbon dioxide and the oxygen remain normal during the time on ventilation. Most of the time, we know that we've got it right when we talk to the patient in the morning after the first or second night perhaps on support, most of the time the patient will look and say, wow, I slept wonderfully, this is great. That means pretty clearly that you've gotten a pretty good level of support for that patient. Thank you.
We've discussed pulmonary support. How do you start airway clearance? Thank you for that question. I think it's very critical because having an effective airway clearance routine can be the deciding factor between treating a cold at home versus coming into the hospital. I try very hard to be proactive in introducing airway clearance um, and airway clearance devices, which I'll talk about in just a moment, ideally early in the progression of disease and perhaps even before they're absolutely necessary. The more passive approach is to wait until a patient finally has that one respiratory illness that requires hospitalization. Um, I consider that a failure. Instead, what I try to do is talk about the concept of airway clearance during a visit, and then ideally introduce a device such as the mechanical insufflator exufflator, which is a general device that's produced by a number of different companies that gives a positive pressure um, to a patient when they're breathing in to help them breathe in more deeply, then cycles to a negative pressure or suction to help the patient breathe out forcefully. It's widely agreed upon that having a mechanical insufflator exufflator is the hallmark of airway clearance therapy, both chronically on a day-to-day basis to remove the secretions we produce every day, but more importantly, during an acute illness, when a patient has increased airway secretions, both in the upper airway and then perhaps down in the lungs if they perhaps have a viral or a bacterial bronchitis or bronchiolitis. In addition, it's important to recognize when a patient's beginning to get sick and then implement an acute management plan as early as possible in the acute illness. The recognition of the need to increase airway clearance is critical in trying to aggressively manage an illness as it's developing and hopefully be able to manage that illness effectively, successfully at home and prevent the need for an inpatient hospitalization. Yes, that's very important, very good point. Um, To conclude this discussion, do you have any best practices or takeaways that you would like to share with our listeners? Yes, yes. The one, I think, single factor that is absolutely critical is having an acute management plan. It's it's challenging, but um, relatively easy to manage patients when they're well. It's very difficult to recognize what needs to happen when a patient's beginning to get sick. And the example that I would give is those of us who are unaffected um, know that we're sick because we start coughing or a partner who is unaffected. We know that that partner is beginning to get sick because they start to cough. And it's because they have secretions that develop in their lungs that need to be expectorated and removed. The challenge for somebody that has weak respiratory muscles is that they can't do that. And so it's important for a caregiver or the patient, frankly, to be able to recognize that they need some help. And we have devices that um, can help patients expectorate secretions. And we place those with patients as early in the uh, progression of disease as possible. And when it's recognized that the patient's beginning to get sick, And it's absolutely critical to aggressively implement those treatments at a level to help clear secretions and hopefully prevent the patient from developing to the point where they need to seek medical care and they can be managed effectively at home. 
So having a very uh, formal and understood um, acute management plan, I think, is the single biggest factor in successfully managing a patient with muscular dystrophy. Thank you. That was a great discussion. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Dr. Meyer, and discuss this important topic. Thank you for sharing your experience and insights. We hope it will support clinicians and patients throughout the disease journey. Finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode. We hope you have found it relevant and informative. Want more episodes of the Take On Duchenne podcast? Subscribe to our show at ptcbio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're at it, leave us a rating and review to let us know you're enjoying our discussions and contribute your thoughts. We love to hear back from our listeners. Thank you for joining us today and for allowing us to raise our voices in support of the DMD community.